Hey guys, welcome back. This is episode 18 of Real Estate Investing in New York with me, Christina Kremitis. In this episode, we are talking all about the due diligence process and I do have another guest for you guys on today's episode. I have Milan Rangach coming on with me. He is a real estate attorney in New York City and he is going to be answering 16 questions for us that I've prepared specifically related to the due diligence process. By the end of this episode, I think that you guys will have a really good handle on what needs to occur and what needs to be accomplished during the due diligence process and really what to look out for and how to make sure that your attorney is working in your best interests. In addition to the very important questions that I've prepared for Milan today, at the end, we are also going to talk about how COVID has changed the due diligence process or made it a little bit more complicated. And I'm also asking him about the craziest thing he's ever seen in a real estate contract. So you are going to find immense value in this episode. Before I get started, please consider subscribing to this channel. If you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe and give the video a thumbs up, leave a comment, let me know what you think. If you are listening on the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast, please leave it a positive review. This is immensely helpful as I attempt to get this free real estate investing information to as many people as possible. My goal really is to make sure that you guys are equipped with the information that you need to engage in a real estate transaction, no matter who you're working with. So please definitely subscribe so that you can be up to date on when new episodes are posted and so that you can support me as I provide this information. Also, you can follow me on Instagram. That's a great place for us to just connect on more of a personal level. You'll see a lot of the behind the scenes and what I'm doing every single day. And you know that at any time you can also send me an email if you have any questions or if you'd like for me to help you with your real estate transaction. My email address is christina.cremitis at element.com. So with that said, I am going to bring in Milan. Hey Milan. Hey, Christina, how are you? Good morning. Good. Thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, of course. Likewise, thank you. So before we get into the meat of this content, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about what you do, the name of your company, and what you focus on. Sure. Uh, Milan Rangach, attorney, uh, founding partner, manager of Rangach Law PC. We practice real estate transaction law, contracts, business law, wills, trust, and estates. Awesome. And your focus is real estate law, right? Yes. Correct. Yes. Real estate law is my bread and butter. Yes. Amazing. All right. Awesome. So in this episode, we're going to be talking all about the due diligence process so that everyone who's watching and listening is aware the due diligence process happens once a purchaser has an accepted offer with a seller. So let's say you're looking at an apartment you decide you like this unit, you make an offer, the seller counters, you eventually come to a meeting of the minds, and now it's time for you to sign your contract. Before you sign your contract, you have your real estate attorney thoroughly review the contract as well as look into the building, and this yeah. process is called the due diligence process. This is where you really find out if the building that you're looking to purchase is a good investment. So that is why you wanna make sure 
you want to make sure that you have a great attorney on your side who's going to thoroughly check everything for you and be very honest with you and bring up the issues that are actually important to discuss before you sign a contract. So that is the due diligence process. Milan is going to give us all of the details and we've got 16 questions lined up for Milan and we'll jump in right now with the first question, Milan, what are the main components of the due diligence process? So the due diligence process varies on the different types of properties. However, the, the bread and butter when it comes to due diligence documents are the offering plan with amendments, financials, certificates of insurance, board minutes, title reports, surveys, et cetera, et cetera. So now that sounded like a lot, but we are going to explain what each of those components are. So Milan, what are the board meeting minutes and why are they so important to review? So the board minutes are very important, A, because they're required by law. Every co-op or condo board must maintain board minutes. What did they do? They reveal the overall status of the building. They show what the board deliberates on. They show what the board is is trying to make a decision on. They show the board's uh, voting rights. They show the board's quorum, meaning whether the voting requirements have been met. They basically uh, disclose any and all decisions that the board has to make in terms of the buildings, its financial status, any capital improvements, any expenditures, any investments on the behalf of the building. Okay, so that's obviously a lot of information. So the board meeting minutes are recorded every single time, obviously, the board holds a meeting. And it's the attorney's responsibility... It's the attorney's responsibility to go to the management office where these meetings are usually held. And the attorney will read through, how far back do you go, Milan? Between three to four years. Yeah, of of meeting minutes. So they'll go back and they'll read the notes for every meeting that's occurred in that period of time. And very often, that's where we will find out if there's going to be a charge to unit owners to cover work that might need to be done. It will tell us if they're, like Milan just said, it will tell us if there has been a problem in the building that needed to be repaired, things like that as well. I would say when it comes to board minutes, I would say the the biggest thing is you're trying to look out for red flags when it comes to pending assessments, uh, future increases of maintenance, or any kind of litigation against the building, uh, because those tend to be problems for potential purchasers and or lending institutions who are giving out a loan to a potential buyer. Right. That's an excellent point. Thank you. All right. Moving on. What is the offering plan and why is it important to review? So the offering plan is sort of like the holy Bible for either a co-op or a condo. When it comes to co-ops, the offering plan is usually put in place before the building is converted from a rental to a co-op. When it comes to condos, it's usually drafted before the new development condo is launched. And every amendment to the offering plan for a new development condo needs to be approved by the attorney general's office. So the offering plan, typically the most important part of the offering plan is the schedule A, which discloses the amount of units, the square footage of the unit, the estimated price of the unit, the square footage, the amount of rooms and bathrooms, the offering plan price, the anticipated common charges or maintenance, anticipated taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, a, it's like you said, it's like really the blueprint of what this building is. Correct. Correct. Awesome. Yes. It, it, also, it also lists all of the amenities of the building, any kind of information pertaining to the board, 
And co-ops as well as condos have an offering plan, correct? Correct, correct. And obviously private houses don't. Private houses do not have an offering plan, no. Exactly. What is a proprietary lease and why is it important to review? So a proprietary lease is only present in cooperative buildings. What it does is it sets the procedural standards for a co-op and sets the relationship between the landlord and the tenant. Whenever you purchase a co-op unit, you are not an actual owner of the unit. You are what's called a shareholder of the corporation. The proprietary lease sets the procedural rules and or standards between the landlord being the co-op corporation and the shareholder being the tenant. Okay, excellent. So what are the implications for a purchaser when they're looking at the proprietary lease? Like what are they looking to find? Essentially, when it comes to the proprietary lease, the, the most important aspect of it is the expiration date. The proprietary lease is executed by the cooperative corporation and the time period of its effectiveness determines the relationship between the landlord, the corporation, and the tenant being the shareholder. And as long as the proprietary lease is in effect, then the shareholders will still have rights to their unit. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So what are the house rules and why are they important to review? The house rules are basically the quality and life controls in a co-op building, in a condo building. They basically set the procedures for what can and cannot be done in the common areas, in the yard, uh, any smoking policies, any nuisance policies, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. So it's very important to review the house rules prior to signing your contract because you want to make sure that there's nothing written in the house rules that you feel is going to be difficult for you to follow, for example, as far as what you need to do once you're living in the apartment. Um, usually house rules are really not difficult to follow. They're pretty obvious most of the time, and they're really created to keep the peace in the building among all of the unit owners and the residents and things there. I mean, there are some things here and there that sometimes people don't like, like a lot of co-ops will require that you have, let's say carpeting down in like your main living, living room. 80% or bedroom. 80% of the unit has to be carpeted. That's usually the typical co-op rule. 80% of your, so that's the thing, like 80% of your apartment is supposed to be carpeted in many co-op buildings. So, you know, these are things to be aware of, that these are technically the rules. I would say another big one from the house rules is the pet policy. A lot of potential buyers care about their pet policies. Those are huge, you know. Both you and I can attest to that fact because we've had numerous deals where the potential buyers had pets, you know, and they weren't going to consider the building in the unit if, if the building did not approve their, their respective pet. Excellent point. Do you know what that reminds, do you know what this reminds me of? Do you remember when I had a client who had pet rats? A couple of years back. Wait, do you, oh, oh, okay. Actually, you weren't the attorney working on that one, but I remember but consulting I remember, you. I remember, yes. yes. I, I remember, remember consulting you. Yeah. Because my client, literally, my client had pet rats and we were, we ended up getting them approved with the building though. She was able to move in and the building was actually aware of these pets. So that's the thing too, to, 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 to keep in mind is that the house rules obviously are usually pretty heavily enforced, but 
if you're the best, the best thing to do when it comes to, if you have a question about the house rules or if you, if you want to see if there can be exceptions made, you want to be as open and transparent as possible. If you have a make or break, like if you have a specific kind of pet that you want to be allowed into this building, oftentimes you're better off not sneaking it. You could, you know, there are ways to see if the board can grant you an exception. I would say definitely reach out to management and or the board before uh, anywhere between the offer acceptance stage and the contract execution stage, definitely in between those two stages, get a def definitive answer on uh, any kind of house rule policy that you're looking to, you know, inquire about, whether it being a, a pet, smoking policy, etc. Got it. Okay, for our next question, this involves building financials. What are the main things that you're looking for when you are reviewing the building financials? And are there anything you use as guidelines to determine whether a building has good financials or bad financials? Very good question. So when it comes to financials, essentially, whether it's a condo or a co-op, you look at a couple of different factors. You look at the, the condo or the co-op's assets, liabilities, any kind of investments, any kind of expenditures. Um, you look at whether uh, any, is there a current assessment? Is there a pending assessment? You look at the increases in the maintenance over the past couple of years, because those, the assessment and the maintenance tend to be good indicators of whether the building has good or bad financials. A good rule of thumb is that the co-op or condo has to maintain certain level of uh, reserves. When it comes to co-ops, a good level of reserves is anywhere between three to six months of maintenance. Um, and overall, I would just say it's, it's a debit and credit of the analyzation of the numbers of each uh, building, whether it's a co-op or a condo. Yeah. Got it. So did you, did you say, sorry, did you tell us what you like to see in the reserve fund? Yes. Well, typically when it comes to the reserve fund, you want to see that the building maintains anywhere between three to six months of the common charges or the maintenance for the building, just in case any kind of additional expenses or unforeseen expenses come up. So give us an example of what that monetary amount looks like. If the common charges are $1,000 a month. So if, if, if the common charge is $1,000 a month for a respective unit, the reserve should maintain anywhere between $3,000 to $6,000 for that respective unit times the number of units in the building. Okay. Given common charge for the month. Okay. That makes sense because it sounded, that sounded really low for the whole building, but that makes sense per unit. Per unit. Correct. That's good to know. Yes. Because... If there is an unexpected maintenance job that needs to happen in the building, like let's say the building needs to replace their roof for some reason, or if the building has a leak, you want to make sure that the building has enough money in its reserve fund to cover unexpected expenses like that. Because if a building doesn't, if, if a building doesn't have enough money in the reserve fund, then it will impose an assessment on the unit owners, which is a mandatory payment in addition to your already existing monthly maintenance. So it's definitely something that you want to make sure of. And like Milan was saying earlier, 
the bank also very much cares how much money is in the reserve fund for the same reason, because a bank, when you're getting a mortgage, is carefully calculating the risk with respect to how sure the bank is that you are going to make all of your payments. So if you also have this unexpected monthly maintenance fee, that might affect whether you can also pay the mortgage. So if the, if the building financials aren't strong, the bank is not gonna wanna give you a mortgage in the building. So it's definitely good to pay close attention to that. Correct. Also, please remember that any kind of assessment that's imposed on a shareholder or owner has to be approved by the board. It has to be discussed and approved by the board via quorum voting. Um, also, very important, assessments come into place mainly for capital improvements, whether it's roof work, elevator work, local law 11. When the building does not have enough reserve funds or does not want to dip into the reserve funds for the capital improvement work, for example, they tend to impose these assessments on the shareholders or the owners you know, to help alleviate the situation. Um, also, when, when, when reviewing the financials, you also try to look at the number of units owned by the sponsor. A, because the number of sponsor-owned units in the building determines the liability and the risk that the lender takes on in the building, because the, more, the greater the number of units that are owned by a sponsor in a building, the higher the risk is for a lender because of the potential that a sponsor could go belly up and or default in making the respective maintenance or common charge payments every month. So for example, if the sponsor goes belly under, then the financials will really be in a bad place for the respective buildings. Hence, the lender will, will view that in an adverse fashion when it comes to giving a potential loan to a potential buyer. Got it. Is there a specific percentage that you want the number of sponsor-owned apartments to be under in a building? Yeah. Yeah, I would say I would say a good rule of thumb is you don't want the sponsor units to to be over twenty to thirty percent of the the units in the building. You don't want the sponsor to own more than twenty to thirty percent of the units in the building because that's viewed as a as a risk for any potential lender. Uh, Got it. Got it. And of course, a bank might have different requirements. Correct. But yeah, it, varies, it varies from bank to bank. Yeah. Yeah you want to make sure that you're within a safe percentage. Yes. It's also good to, to have a potential building pre-approved by your lender before you move forward with the, the purchase process. Exactly. That's one of the things that I like to do when we are in the offer phase or preparing to make an offer. I will usually reach out to the lender who's going to be working with the buyer on the transaction. And I will ask the lender to, I call it a gut check to give the building a gut check to see lenders have the ability to look into their databases and see if they've lent in the building recently. So if you're working with Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo can go into their database and say, yes, we actually did do a mortgage in this building last year. So the odds are that that will be able to approve the building again this year, unless something has significantly changed. Of course, they need to review the financials and the budget of the building, you know, and then send any kind of documents that they need, like a lender questionnaire to management of the building. But overall, yes, a building needs to be approved by the lender before they can provide a loan to a potential buyer. Yes. Got it. Thank you for that. Of course. One of the first things that 
the attorney does, as soon as we have an accepted offer on a property and we begin the due diligence process, is you will send a questionnaire to the management company. What is the purpose of this questionnaire and what are the most important questions that are included in it? So the questionnaire basically gives me a SparkNotes version of the building and its financials before I actually delve deeper into the due diligence process. The basic questions in the questionnaire are what, are, what are the amount of uh, shares for the unit when it comes to the co-op? What is the common interest percentage when it comes to a condo? What is the maintenance? What is the common charge? Are there any pending uh, assessments, any future assessments, any pending uh, increases in the maintenance of the common charges, the pet policy, the proprietary lease expiration date, the reserve funds of a building, the smoking policy. So pretty much it's, like you said, it's like the spark notes. It's kind of your like kickstart to getting the most important questions answered before you then go in and delve deeply into finding out these answers through all of the longer form documents. Yes. Cool. Okay, now for the contract, what are the most important elements of a contract of sale? So when it comes to a contract, the most important elements are the buyer and seller names, the property location, the closing date, the mortgage contingency, the appraisal contingency, the, the inclusions, the exclusions uh, of the brokers. Inclusions and exclusions, do you mean what is going to be provided with the apartment in the, in the sale? Like Yes, like furniture or anything included in the unit. Yeah, appliances, stuff like that, yeah. Okay. Anything else for the contract? I would say the most important part, uh, for the most part, a contract is usually the standard form. But the most important part when it comes to the contract is the rider, the buyer and seller's riders, which are... Uh, the additions, the supplements to the meat and potatoes being the standard form of the contract. Uh, buyers tend to supplement the contract with the riders to include any and all additional provisions that they wish to, you know, advocate on the behalf of their clients. Got it. Okay. Like what's an example of something that would be in a rider? Uh, any kind of repairs that, that are required and agreed upon between the parties. Um, uh, any kind of mortgage funding contingency. I'll get into that a little bit later with the COVID-19 funding contingency since the pandemic started, it's very prevalent. But I would say for the most part, repairs, any kind of loan funding contingency, any kind of clarification for an ambiguous term or provision in the standard form. You want to supplement that ambiguity. Got it. Okay. As far as the due diligence process overall, it usually takes about one to two weeks to complete what would you say would be a reason why we would experience delays or taking longer than that? I would say the biggest factor when it comes to delays in the due diligence process is probably the management company being backed up or overwhelmed, you know, with the amount of inquiries that they have. You know, overall, you have to, you have to stay, re you have to be reasonable and you have to stay uh, persistent in your requests you know, from management, because if you're not persistent, then you may not get the, the necessary answer that you're looking for in terms of the due diligence process. And inevitably, if you're delayed, yeah, the deal might fall apart because as you know, time kills all deals in this business, you know? So the faster you're able to get due diligence answers, the faster you're able to go into contract. Great point. And I like 
how you say that as well, because it is very true. Time does kill transactions and, you know, we don't rush our clients while we're in this process, but it's extremely, extremely important that the attorney is really on the ball and proactively following up and putting an urgent, a sense of urgency on the transaction. And that is one of the reasons why I do love recommending you to my clients when we are making a purchase, because you'd be surprised at how other attorneys really could mess up a transaction by not, by simply not being fast enough. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not that they're not treating your deal with care, but it's that if they have a lot of deals on their plate, they have to prioritize a certain way. Right. Right. So, and that's one of the things that I love about recommending you to my clients is that you prioritize their transaction. Thank you. I would say, I would say diligence and persistence is key in this business when it comes to facilitating deals, which, you know, I tend to do. Yes. 100%. How does your due diligence process differ between each property type, whether you are assessing a condo, a co-op or a private house? So as previously mentioned, when it comes to a condo or a co-op, you review the offering plan with amendments, the financials, the building certificates, the board minutes. When it comes to a townhouse or a house or a private dwelling, it's a little bit different. The most important due diligence document when it comes to a private house or dwelling is the title report. It reveals any judgments, liens, encroachments against a property. Essentially, the buyer wants to take the property free and clear of all liens, judgments, uh, encroachments, uh, aka marketable title. Um, if if the buyer is not able to obtain marketable title from the seller in a in a house transaction, then the buyer has the right to cancel the contract and get their deposit back. What kind of issues can result from a due diligence process that wasn't done thoroughly enough? I would say the biggest issues that can follow an improper due diligence review of a potential unit or property are assessments, increases in the maintenance or common charges, um, any kind of potential litigation, any kind of potential capital improvements that were missed during the due diligence review. Essentially, anything that would cost the, the buyer money in the future. Got it. Good to know. Actually, as a little, what was the word I'm looking for? Something that happened in my own personal experience when I was buying my apartment in New York, I wanted to use a personal family attorney when I was purchasing my real estate in Manhattan. I don't know if he specialized in real estate law. He might have, but um you know, he was recommended for me to use and I turned down the recommendation of my real estate agent when I was making the purchase. And this attorney, I don't think he read anything when he was helping me with my transaction. Um, aside from the fact that he literally yelled at me when I called his cell phone one time, cause I was only supposed to call his office line. It was so bad. Um, he did not read any, I don't think he read the details of this. I don't think he read the board minutes and 
right after I closed on my apartment, um, the building instated a fee for something that was literally a thousand dollars a year. And I had no warning that, that, that this was coming down the pipe. That's, I mean, if you think about a fee like that over the course of a mortgage or over the course of your ownership, uh, if you, let's say you plan on holding on to your property for the, for the duration of your mortgage. So if I was going to hold this place for 30 years, that's $30,000 that my attorney just failed to mention to me or even find out about. So if you guys doubt it for a second, there are plenty of attorneys that are not going to do the due diligence thoroughly. I mean, you might think that's crazy and not going to happen, but it's, I want to say it's pretty common. So you definitely want to make sure that you are working with an attorney that you at least that has a good reputation in the industry or comes recommended to you from someone in the industry. Don't just take whoever a family member or a friend may, may recommend because you don't know if, you know, you don't know if they focus on real estate and you also don't know if you're going to have a a good experience. And overall, the attorney, you will close. Like I closed on my property. Like I, I didn't lose the property, but I was not informed of a significant cost that was imminently coming down the pipe. Like clearly if one board meeting minute was reviewed, it, this would have been found. And, right. um, and you know, the, the process is it's purchasing a home to begin with is an emotional process. You have a lot of questions and you, you want to make sure that your attorney is not going to literally yell at you like I got yelled at for accidentally dialing a cell number versus an office number. I mean, this happens. And it makes a big difference in how you feel during the transaction. By the end of the transaction, do you feel like it was smooth or do you feel like you just went through a war? Like that's kind of how I describe it to my clients. Like odds are you'll close one way or another. But will the experience be good or bad? And will you find out that there are unexpected issues or will you be aware of, it, of everything before, before you close? Um, just to add to that point, um, you should hire, if you're looking to purchase a sell property, you should hire an attorney who, who primarily practices in real estate transaction law. And it's also very important to find an attorney who exhibits professional courtesy at all times and points. Because, you know, if they don't, then it could potentially jeopardize the relationship between both you, between you and your attorney. That's an interesting. And also, too, between you and the seller, because if the attorney yeah. doesn't conduct themselves properly and professionally with the seller side, I have seen, I'm sure we've all seen that happen, too. Um, when I say we all, I don't mean, obviously, I don't mean our listeners. I mean, you and I and people in the industry, how a seller's attorney really could just be like, screw you guys. Like, I don't want to deal with you. If the, if the attorney is not cooperative on the buyer side. Yep. Yeah. This, this all happens. We've all seen it way too many times, unfortunately in this business, but you know what you, in this business, you, you keep on moving forward and try to stay optimistic and and run the course. Yes. Okay. I'm going to deviate a little bit from the questions that we've already outlined because I thought of a couple of things 
as we were talking about this that I feel are really important. This reminds me of a feeling that I personally had when I was buying my property in Manhattan. And it's a question that I get sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I do get this question when I'm working with a purchaser and we get to the point where we have to figure out who their attorney is going to be. And the concern sometimes is, I know I was skeptical when I was buying. Your real estate agent recommends an attorney for you to use, right? They say, here are a few good people. Talk to them and use them as your attorney if, so, if you so wish. And as a purchaser, you may say, why would I use someone that you're recommending to me when it comes to, you know, an, an attorney that may really find some information about this transaction that would cause me to not purchase this apartment. You're my real estate agent. You're working in my best interest, but I'm sure you want to close on a transaction. Will this attorney that you're recommending to me really bring up all of the issues that they find? And will they really advise that I leave this transaction if I need to? You know, I don't just only want someone that's going to facilitate the closing but I want someone that's going to kill it if it's not good for me. And obviously we know the answer to this question, but how can we, what would you say to, to pretty much kind of justify the work that you do and, and the fact that you're working for the client's best interest, the client meaning the purchaser or your seller, depending on what side you're working on. And what could we say to give comfort to someone that is skeptical that saying real estate agent, why would I just work with whoever you tell me to? Are you guys in cahoots or um, are, are you both really truly, you know, going to kill this deal if something is not in my best interest? So that, that is a very good point. So essentially you're bringing up the point of conflict of interest between the agent and the client, which is very important in this business. I would say when, when a client is deciding or making a decision on a potential attorney to hire for their transaction, whether it's purchase side or the sales side, I would say it's very important for the client, prospective client to look at the reviews of the attorney to see whether they're five star reviews, one star reviews, uh, look at the reviews on different sources, whether it's Avo, whether it's Yelp, whether it's Google. Also try to get some kind of word of mouth from other professionals in the industry, maybe their loan officer. Word of mouth is very important in this business. And I would say whether it's word of mouth or social media, that could help them make an informed decision when it comes to choosing the right attorney that suits their you know, interest in the given transaction. And just to put it as bluntly as we possibly could, can you, can you just reinforce for our listeners here that there would never be a scenario where you wouldn't be working solely in their best interest? Like once you're working with a client and you have a contract in front of you, aside from timing and saying, this is one of Christina's transactions, I'm going to make sure that I, 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 I pick this piece of paper up first in the beginning of every day. Would there ever be a time when your number one focus wasn't the the health of the deal and the benefit of the purchaser or seller. Um, ultimately, you're not working for me. You're, you're working for the client. 
Correct. So very good point. So in terms of the relationship between the agent or the broker and the attorney, the most important thing, uh, most important aspect is the updates. Uh, the attorney should remain responsive. However, when it comes to the relationship between the client and the attorney, it is the attorney represents the client's best interest in a zealous fashion and tries to do everything in his power to represent the fiduciary duties of the client. So the attorney has to take an objective approach when it comes to the transaction versus versus a self-interested approach. You know, the attorney has to do whatever's best, whatever's in the best interest of the client and not the broker. However, at the same time, we the best interest of both the broker and the client is to get the deal done. Uh, obviously, if all the due diligence checks out. Of course. Thank you for that. That was perfectly stated. And then, you know, to answer, people are very skeptical. People can be very skeptical. So to put this to bed, um, the benefits, what are the benefits of me referring you to a client? Communication is the biggest thing, in my opinion. Right? Would, like, what are you going to do for me? Like, I, I mean, I think, I truly think that you, you treat all of your clients equally, but how would you, what would be the only preference that you gave one of my clients over, over anyone else? When you were referred by a broker that you have close prior transactions with, or you have a prior rapport or some kind of relationship with, I would say that the relationship helps to create a better working environment between the broker, the attorney, and the client, and maybe even a loan officer or mortgage broker. You know, you're, you're supposed to build a team of professionals that have some kind of rapport with one another because it, it helps streamline the process, which could be at times difficult. It helps to make, make it more seamless and more transparent for the client which inevitably makes the transaction easier. Yes, that perfectly sums it up, I feel. Um, and I think that, that that really helps explain to a lot of people, um, really, we're, we're on a text messaging basis. I mean, if I want an update or if, if the client wants an update, I can get one immediately. And that's really the biggest thing. Um, and I, you know, I feel like if, if I did think that timing was in, in jeopardy, or if I know that a seller is breathing down our necks for whatever reason, I can communicate with you very bluntly and be very straightforward. And it, it's just that way that we have a good working relationship together. And that's why we're able to get things done quickly. Um, right. And that's, you know, that's really all it is. I would say when it comes to the attorney and uh, the attorney and broker relationship, you want to work with an attorney who's what we call a deal facilitator versus a deal killer. Deal killers tend to complicate deals when in reality, you know, they, they're simple and they're very transparent. And deal facilitators make take a hard situation and make it into an easy situation and essentially keep all the parties happy and they close. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Of course. Okay. Okay, we have a couple of questions left, and then I'm going to get to the uh, last interesting question, which incorporates COVID. But quickly, what is a title search? Why is a title search important? Does a title search cost money? And what types of properties require a title search? Very good question. So a uh, title search is required for what we call real property. Real property is categorized into two types of properties, whether it's a condo and a house. The title report showcases or displays any types of liens, judgments, uh, bankruptcies, encroachments via the survey. Basically, you want to make sure that the 
property that you are buying, whether it's a condo or a house, aka real property, uh, is conveyed in a marketable fashion to you, meaning you get marketable title to the property. If in the event that you are not conveyed marketable title, you do have the right to cancel the contract as a buyer and get your deposit back. Um, also wanna, the, the title report also reveals any, any open mortgages or any open liens against the property and you wanna make sure that those are cleared off or paid off before the closing. Thank you. What you mentioned marketable title, what is that? Marketable title is an industry term which uh, specifies that the property that you're buying, whether it's a condo or a house, is conveyed free and clear of all liens, judgments, uh, encroachments to the potential buyer. Okay, got it. So as a purchaser, you're not taking a property that has issues associated with it. Correct. Yes. You, you also want to make sure that there are no breaks in the chain of title. You want to make sure that you're going to be the outright title and deed owner after the closing and that nobody can contest the deed, the title ownership process along the line. Because title really, title states who the owner of the property is, right? The title report shows who has the vested interest in the property at the time of the transaction, which in reality should be the seller. And the buyer should always be conveyed marketable title from the seller to themselves. In the event that marketable title is not conveyed, then the buyer can opt out of the transaction and get their deposit back. Yes. Got it. So the goal is for you to be the only, as the purchaser of the property, you should be the only person on that title. You're the only owner of that property unless you're buying it with someone else. And no one, as long as that's the case, no one can come out of the woodwork and say that they own part of the property. Well, there's no guarantees for that. I mean, the title company, before you close, the title company needs to issue title clearance, meaning they need to clear all the title potential title issues in the transaction. However, it is highly recommended that the buyer gets uh, owner's policy, owner's title insurance to protect their interest in the property in the event of a potential title defect and or litigation that may ensue in the future. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much. Of course. All right. We're nearing the close here. What do your attorney fees typically cost? My attorney fees vary based on the price point, based on the complexity, based on the area. The general range of the attorney fees that my firm charges tend to be between $2,500 to $3,500 flat rate fee. We do not bill by the hour, so that works in the favor of the client. Got it. That makes sense. Okay, so we can kind of go over these fairly quickly because I feel like we did address a lot of this earlier in the episode, but... My next two questions were, what are the most important characteristics of a good attorney? And what should a purchaser or a seller really be considering when it comes time to decide who should represent them in their transaction? I would say the most important factors when it comes to deciding on hiring an attorney for your respective transaction should be the attorney's responsiveness and diligence. Um, you want an attorney who's advocating in your best interest and also who's pretty responsive when it comes to a certain legal matter, a certain legal issue, or any kind of issue in your respective transaction. You want them to be able to give you comprehensive answers and you want them to give you real-time answers You know, so you're well-informed of the situation. Thank you. All right. For our last question, it's a two-part question. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen written in a 
purchase or sales contract? And more importantly, how has COVID changed or complicated the due diligence process? Very good questions. The first question, the craziest thing that I've ever seen in a real estate transaction was the probably was probably the inclusion of a pet in the sale of an apartment. No. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, the craziest thing was probably some kind of funding contingency, you know, uh, that gave the buyer a potential right to back out. Maybe the the closing period wasn't the standard uh, 60 to 90 days. Maybe the closing period was agreed upon between both parties to be, say, for example, anywhere between six months to a year. And uh, if the closing doesn't occur within that time period, which is definitely a very extended time period for a closing, six months to a year, it gave the buyer a potential way out and only the buyer had the right to cancel the contract. Basically the option. Yeah. Interesting. And when it comes to COVID-19, I mean, given the pandemic, you know, a lot of people are paranoid and skeptical about everything going on in the market and society. But when it comes to COVID-19, the impact that is had on real estate transaction is that buyers want potential ways out of the contract in the event that they lose their job or financial status as a result of some kind of COVID-19 related issue. So essentially the COVID-19 funding contingency or provision allows buyers the way out of the contract if they lose their job or the lender fails to issue them a loan or fund their loan for reasons related to COVID-19. That's a good point. So you're saying that people have been getting clauses that have been able to be added into their contracts and I've, I've seen a couple of these too uh, recently, but essentially protecting the buyer more than they were protected before. Correct. Yes. Given the pandemic, I would say it's pretty customary and standard these days to, to see a COVID-19 funding contingency in your contract. Yep. Good to know, guys. So keep that in mind. If our viewers are interested in getting in touch with you, where should they go? There's a couple of different uh, avenues. They could check uh, our social media page. They could check our Facebook page. They could check Google, Yelp, Avo. There's a bunch of different sources where all uh, our firm's contact information is definitely listed, phone number, email, fax, etc. Okay, and they should look up Rangachwa. Correct. Okay, I'll link that for everybody. That should be the search query, yeah. Rangachwa okay, cool. PC. All right. If you guys have any, if, if our viewers or listeners have any other questions at all whatsoever, please check my description because I'm including all of the contact info for Milan as well as myself. So you should know exactly how to contact either of us in the event that you have any additional questions after viewing this video or listening to this podcast. So we very much welcome your questions. And if you did want to work with Milan or myself on your transaction to represent you, we are also more than happy to work with you on that as well. Obviously we're busy, but we're never busy for new clients. Thank you so much Milan for your time today. We truly, truly appreciate it. I think that what you shared during this episode was invaluable as far as after listening to what you gave us today, I think we all have a better idea of the types of questions that we should be asking during the due diligence process and really being savvy to know if we are getting the level of service that we deserve. 
Yep, agreed. And if any potential viewer or broker has any questions at all, feel free to contact me at any time. I'm responsive via email, text, phone call, etc. What I did want to also mention is there are a lot of real estate agents who watch this content. Who have a lot of real estate agents have been reaching out to me, telling me that they've really been enjoying these episodes. So that's also something that I'm speaking directly to the agents who are listening. If you guys want a good attorney to add to your list of your referral list for your clients, definitely get in touch with Milan. Let him know that you are here from the pot that you're reaching out to him after hearing this episode. Um, and definitely, you know, definitely develop that relationship because you won't, obviously you won't regret it. He's amazing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Likewise. Of course. Thank you so much, Milan. We really appreciate all of the information you gave us today. Actually, we have a deal that's closing very soon. So I'll be seeing you in person finally after. Yeah. Well, the last time I saw you was recently too. We had a closing a few yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I think that our viewers are going to get so much. I have gotten so much out of this episode. So we thank you, Milan. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. You are the best, Christina. And uh, I'll see you at the closing on our next deal. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.